You're listening to the sermon podcast of Covenant Baptist Church in Arden, North Carolina. To learn more about us, visit covbap.org. Now, today's sermon. Well, beloved, we tend to forget that the apostles and the prophets, the people who wrote the scriptures, and then even the people who are written of in the scriptures, we tend to forget that they are just that, people, flesh and blood, like you, like me. Sometimes we so revere them or put them on a pedestal that it feels hard to relate. And this is one of the reasons why the scriptures or accounts in the scriptures can feel like they're a long way away. Why the Bible doesn't feel as real or personal or close. And then some passages are very flesh and blood. We see the humanity of the apostles or the prophets. And it draws us in. And it's helpful. Our passage today in Paul's letter to the Romans is like that. The fact that Paul is a human being like you and like me who wrestles and plans and hopes and needs other Christians, that's going to come through at various points. And my hope for us, my prayer for us, is that our hearts would be warmed by that and that our souls would be encouraged as we consider various things from Romans chapter 15. So if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and open them. To Romans 15, we're going to be looking at the latter portion of the chapter today, today, excuse me, beginning in verse 14. Now, we've got a lot to get to today, and I'll explain more of that in just a moment. But I do want to give a little bit of context for the letter to the Romans. Now, I don't know about you, but I was affected by the reading of Isaiah this morning, Isaiah 52. For the first 11 chapters, you realize in Paul's letter to the Romans, he unpacks the good news the gospel. Consider some of these words that we heard in our midst this morning. The Lord talks about how things aren't good in Jerusalem, but then Isaiah 52, 3, thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. You're going to be redeemed by the servant who's going to die for you. And this offer of him to you for salvation is free. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, right? Drink, buy, wine and milk without money and without price. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. And they have. His name is Jesus. Isaiah goes on to write about the servant of the Lord who would bear the iniquities of his people because God's people, us included, have all gone astray like lost sheep. We have gone, each one of us, to our own way. This is what Paul conveys in the letter to the Romans, that we are all lawbreakers, that we by nature are at enmity with God, and we are incapable of doing what the law requires. And so there had to be a representative who could be the righteousness of his people and who could bear their sins. Just as Isaiah writes of the one, the righteous one, the servant of the Lord, by whom many would be accounted righteous, Paul writes of him, that Jesus Christ His righteousness and his work is counted to sinners by faith apart from any work that we could ever do. He writes 11 chapters on that. So that all who are united to Christ by faith are being sanctified in this life and will be finally saved by him. That is the good news that we trust not in ourselves. We trust in Christ 
And through Christ alone, by faith, we are reconciled to God. And we have peace with him today, and we have peace with him forever. And that will change everything in your life and mine. To know that as I think of my heavenly father, there is no reason for fear. There is no reason for dread. He is no longer our judge, but he is our loving father. And Christ is our perfect and all-sufficient Savior, and he loves us. That's good news. Paul began in Romans 12 to pivot towards life this side of the resurrection. How do we live? These things about Jesus and peace with God change a person. We don't live like we used to. So what does that look like for us? Paul, in chapter 12 into 13, writes a lot about humility and love and charity and all those kinds of things in the church and even relating to those outside by not only submitting to our government, but also in doing good even to people who harm us. Beginning in chapter 14, Paul doubles down on love and unity in the church. We, in light of Christ, on account of him, should not judge one another. We ought not look down on one another in the church. We ought not argue and bicker over issues of wisdom and conscience. Instead, we're to bear with one another. We live with one another in patience, giving each other the benefit of the doubt. We allow love for each other to govern our exercise, even of Christian freedom. Paul was very clear that Jesus alone is the basis of our unity. Our unity in the local church is not based upon debatable matters. How we school our kids or what kind of food or drink we think are appropriate or how you're going to vote come November. That's not what unites a church. Christ unites the church. And all of this is because he alone is the hope of every single Christian. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, whether you're weak or strong, Christ is it. And that knits hearts together. That's Paul's argument. So we now come to the latter portion of Romans chapter 15. Listen now as I read. This is the word of God. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace of God given to me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, and by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you, 
once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they also ought to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. We thank God for his word today and every day. My plan for the rest of our time is to consider this passage in five points and then offer a conclusion. So five points and a conclusion. Now, the nature of this passage is a little bit different than some. And so this sermon is going to feel different than many do in this regard. So this is your first time here. We're just going to trust the Lord with that. This is going to feel a little bit like a drive-through situation. So every Christmas season, we take our kids over to Lake Julian, the little light show that they do over there, and you drive through in the car and you look at the lights and stuff. Today's sermon is going to kind of be like that. We're just going to drive through portions of this passage. We're going to be like, oh, look at that. That's pretty cool. We're going to pull it out. We're going to talk about it for a minute, and then we're going to move on to the next one. So it's going to be like a Christmas light show minus the hot chocolate. Cool? I hope we're all good. Not good for every sermon, but it fits this passage, and we're going to trust the Lord in it. So point one, I've entitled it Paul's Posture. Point one, Paul's Posture. And what I mean is his posture toward the saints in Rome. We're going to look briefly at verses 14 through 16. So you see, if you put your eyes on verse 14, Paul commends the saints in Rome. He says good things about them. He is confident of their Christian character and of their knowledge. He is confident of their sincerity and their ability to instruct each other. He's confident that they will continue to grow through the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. Those words that he writes to those saints, this this is good for us to see. I trust this has always been true, but certainly in our day, The posture of many pastors, the posture of many preachers of God's word is not like what Paul demonstrates in this verse. The posture often of many preachers and pastors in our day is one of being exacting and threatening and actually doubting that there's much good in their hearers at all, apparently. The assumption, the default assumption is that the people that you're preaching to are a bunch of fakers not legitimate. And so we need to smoke those kind of people out of the church. The apostle Paul is the exact opposite. He commends these dear people. I am satisfied about you. I'm confident in you that you have a lot of good in you by the power of God's spirit, that you believe the truth. You love the Lord. You're able to instruct each other. You have wisdom and discernment. And so he encourages them to that end. And I can speak on behalf of the elders here that we have the same kind of confidence about the members of this congregation 
We are grateful for you in ways that you might not even understand. The ways that the Lord has gifted so many of you. The kind of maturity that we see among you. The ways that you're able to love and bear with one another and instruct each other in the truth. What we do here, may it be so all the more. And may it be that the preaching of God's word is always done with a posture of assuming well of each other and of trusting that you know the Lord, you love him, that we know Christ and love him. Though we don't now see him, we believe in him. And though we haven't seen him, we love him. And that we are people who desire to love God and honor him in everything that we do. We grieve our weakness. We battle the corruption of our flesh. May the Lord give us grace and give us mercy as we walk together in this life. But just notice how Paul speaks to these dear saints in Rome. Then in verses 15 and 16, having commended them, he says, he acknowledges at the same time that he has written boldly to them. He has written things boldly to them by way of reminder, he says. And we would presume that he's referring to things he's written in this letter. He's written boldly to them. He's written how he has, he says, because of the grace of God given him for the purpose of being a minister of Christ to the Gentiles. These things that Paul has written are clearly things that the saints in Rome were already familiar with, but yet he's written on them. They had heard them before, but yet he wrote boldly about them. This too is instructive. Mackenzie's going to be preaching through the book of Philippians this year, Lord willing. And in chapter 3 and verse 1, Paul writes something there that he says, for me to write the same things to you again is of no trouble for me, and it is safe for you. This is the way of the faith, where we, week over week, month over month, year over year, we boldly proclaim these truths, these doctrines of the faith, and we speak them boldly by way of reminder often. The thing that we speak most boldly of anything is Christ for us and the love of God for us in Christ because we're so prone to forget it. Many things in the Christian faith that are most basic often slip our minds and we tend to focus on the wrong things. And so we need to be brought back to Jesus and love and unity and charity in the church. The things that Paul has written of in this letter. You have no righteousness of your own, saints. Don't get it twisted. Christ is all. He's the atonement for your sins. He's the propitiation of the wrath of God. He is your righteousness. Trust him alone. Be confident that because of him, you're going to make it. You're going to groan now. We all do. The creation does, but we will be saved by Jesus Christ. And so now let's love. Let's live together in peace and charity and harmony. We say these things over and over and over again, and it's good for us and it's safe. Paul says that he serves as a priest of sorts in gospel ministry, offering the Gentiles to the Lord by bringing them to faith in Jesus. He's using figurative language here, right? He's figuratively speaking a priest, and the Gentiles who have come to faith in Christ are figuratively speaking an offering, a sacrifice presented to the Lord by Paul. I could talk for a long time about the dangers of taking things that are figurative in Scripture and interpreting them literally, but time doesn't really allow for much. But just know that even when it comes to passages like this, priests being like apostles and pastors and preachers being priests, where we somehow intercede for the saints and offer things to God on behalf of the people, that's dangerous. 
when the bread of the Lord's Supper literally is the body of Jesus Christ and the priest is going to offer the sacrifice of Christ every week in the Mass, that's dangerous. That's wrong. Right? When we start calling the Lord's table the altar, there's nothing to be sacrificed anymore. There is no altar now. It's been once and for all handled. These are just examples of how friends of ours will use language that is meant to be figurative. They'll use it literally, and it presents all kinds of problems. We can talk about that at the door afterward if you're interested. I'd be happy to do that. We're going to move on now to point two. I've entitled this Paul's ministry. Paul's ministry. We're going to look at verses 17 to 21. We're going to camp out on this one a little longer than some of the others, so just be aware of that. These verses are, we need to understand, are about Paul's unique apostolic ministry. That's going to matter. And at the same time, there are ways that we can rightly apply them to us. None of us are apostles in the first century. Amen? We're not. And at the same time, there are things that are applicable to you and me. Verse 17, Paul says that in Christ Jesus, he has reason to be proud of his work for God. Now, I don't want to spend a long time here, but some of you might read that and you're thinking, is that okay? Is that okay to say? Like, that doesn't sit well. I'm proud of my work. What about other things that Paul wrote? For example, like Galatians 6.14, where he says, far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just how he writes at the end of 1 Corinthians 1, after he said that Christ is for us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord, right? Like, Paul, you wrote all that. Is this a contradiction? The answer is no, it's not. Paul's not schizophrenic. The Holy Spirit would not inspire him to write something contradictory. The glorying that Paul renounces in other passages, has to do with his acceptance and standing before the Lord. You understand that? What Paul renounces in terms of glorying in himself is with respect to his standing, his righteousness, his peace, his acceptance before the Lord. We do renounce and we turn from not just our vice, but our virtue when it comes to that. But here, Paul is acknowledging his success in preaching the gospel. And he is about to say that it is Jesus who has done it through him. So we need not worry. Verses 18 and 19. Paul says that he is only speaking, don't miss it, of what Christ has done through him. The Gentiles have been brought to obedience. When you read that, you should understand the obedience of faith, right? That we read about in Romans 1 and 16. The Gentiles have been brought to obedience. In other words, they have believed the gospel. They have trusted Christ. Paul says that Jesus is the one who has accomplished this through him. We know that faith is the gift of God and that he alone gives it. We know that the preacher of the gospel does not impart faith. The hearer of the gospel does not produce it in himself or herself. We know these things. Only Jesus by his spirit opens hearts to believe and to cast themselves upon him. But as Paul is acknowledging, the one who brings the good news, the preacher of the word, think again, Isaiah 52, is an agent, is a vessel, an instrument in God's hands. So it's not good to downplay that part. We ought not. I mean, even as you think about in our own local church, as you encourage one another in the work of ministry that we all even are doing, and even the work that the pastors do pointedly, it is a good thing 
to praise and encourage each other in service of the Lord. It's a good thing for laborers in the gospel to be able to look at each other and just say something simple after a service or after a conversation or a meeting and be like, you know, we're doing good gospel work. That's fine to say. We should talk like that. We should encourage one another. All the while, we don't get it twisted. We joyfully ascribe all the power and all the effectiveness to God alone. We know what's going on, but it's a privilege to be used of the Lord in his service, to see people come to faith and to see people built up in it. And all the while, we remind all of us that the Lord is in the business of using broken vessels and that any straight lines that are drawn in this church or any other place have been drawn with crooked sticks. And he's the one who's done that. Paul says that all of this was accomplished, bringing the Gentiles to faith by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, and by the power of the Spirit of God. So these things would include Paul's preaching. They would include miraculous works and gifts of the Spirit that confirm the gospel and its power. In all of this, as you look toward the end of verse 19, resulted in Paul fulfilling the ministry of the gospel of Christ that he'd been given from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, which is modern day Albania. This is quite a bit of territory where Paul has gone and preached the gospel and established churches in various places. Then in verses 20 and 21, we should see that Paul's apostolic ministry was quite literally the fulfillment of the words of the prophets. He cites Isaiah 52, 15. The Lord had said this would happen. And realize, too, this is kind of bringing it more towards us now. Paul had a unique calling and a unique ministry in this era, which is also why he says that I'm not going to preach Christ where he's already been named, right? That's his unique apostolic calling. I am to go and preach Christ as the gospel is going out from Jerusalem. I am going to preach Christ where he's not yet been preached. So he had that unique calling, but realize, too, That just as Paul's ministry was a fulfillment of prophecy, so also is the way that the gospel has gone to the ends of the earth over the last 2,000 years. You realize that. The ways that the Lord has used his saints for two millennia to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, quite literally, is a fulfillment of what the Lord said would happen. Be encouraged as you think about how God keeps his promises. Now, what I want to do for a few minutes I want to try to make some helpful applications for us regarding missions. Let's talk about missions. This text screams it. We're going to consider it. We'll state this at the outset. We collectively should desire that the gospel go forth to the ends of the earth. Amen? Pity the nations, O our God, and constrain the earth to come. Send thy victorious word abroad and bring the strangers home. To which we say, amen. We long to see your churches full, do we not? That all the chosen race may with one voice and heart and soul sing thy redeeming grace. Amen. May it be. And it is clear that the Lord through history has stirred his people to take the gospel to nations and peoples that have never heard it before. He's done that. He still does. Now, a way that verse 20 could be misapplied is that we should concern ourselves exclusively with taking the gospel to unreached peoples. That's not what it means for us today. I trust you see that and know that. 
But it is good that we would be concerned that people who have never heard the gospel before, maybe in their own language, would hear it. That would be a good thing. I bring this up for you to pray for and pray for our pastors and our congregation to have wisdom. The four pastors of CBC are headed to Tijuana, Mexico next month to spend some time with individuals from an organization called Radius International. So this is a missionary training school that trains laborers for church planting amongst unreached language groups all over the world. And one of their training hubs is in Tijuana, Mexico. We have some relationships with the people who lead this ministry. And so we're going to go and kick the tires and spend a couple of days there and think about whether this is a good entity for CBC to partner with as we even think about how can our church directly or indirectly be involved with the gospel going to people who have never heard it. So pray for that. Let's ask this question. What does having an appropriate concern for missions look like for you, for us, members of Covenant Baptist Church? What does it look like? Let's consider that together. So many of us, many of you have families. You're training and catechizing your children. Life is full, a lot going on. You're serving your neighbor through your vocation. You're showing up here week after week. First of all, keep doing all that. Keep doing all of that. Keep contributing to the health of this church. Invest in your brothers and sisters here that we might mutually grow in the faith. That's where we start. Know that there are ways that our church is involved in supporting gospel ministry in various places. Mackenzie prayed for Mariano Borje, who is a supported worker of our church who lives in Hinatega, Nicaragua. He is doing good work down there. It is a part of a gospel preaching church in that city, in that land where there is quite a bit of difficulty, even politically. There's a lot of unrest these days. Pray for him and pray for that work. Our church is a part of something called the Grace Reform Network, where we're going to be supporting church planting in various locations, domestic and abroad. We are having regular conversations as pastors right now with a group of guys seeking to plant a church in Romania that to our knowledge would be the first confessional Baptist church in that land, maybe the only one there. That's cool. That's exciting stuff. We should pray for these things. And may the Lord grant that we would be all the more involved as a church over the course of years and decades in works like this in America and elsewhere. So know these things, pray for these things as a member of this church. And may it be at the same time, also as McKenzie prayed today, that the Lord would raise up people from this congregation to go. Now, the Lord in raising people up to go will make that plain. He will make it clear and he will do that through various means. It's not just this kind of subjective individual thing, though that's a piece of it, where the Lord will give us desires. He'll give us hopes for the ways we might serve him. That's real. And alongside that, there will be the observations and the encouragements of your fellow saints that will help you think about how you're gifted by God to serve him well. And what might make sense for you to do with your life? The Lord works through various means. Continuing to think together, what I'm trying to do here for us is to help us to think reasonably and well and to thread a needle that's healthy when it comes to thinking about missions and our church's involvement. It's very clear. Let's work from the things that are most clear to the things that are less clear. It's clear that every one of us is called by God to love our neighbor. This includes people outside of our local church. We live in Metro Asheville. We are called to deal uprightly with our neighbors. We are called to treat 
people that we encounter in our daily lives with respect. We should show them consideration. We should be thoughtful in the ways that we engage. We should seek to get to know people that are folded into our regular rhythms and patterns of life. We should be prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have. We should invite people to taste and see that the Lord is good. We should invite people in to see that Christ is the Savior of mankind. And while we're on this topic, if you are a person who's sitting out there this morning and you're thinking, man, I'm burdened along with you. I'm burdened to see people come to faith in Christ. I'm burdened that our church would make an impact in this community in speaking well and winsomely of Christ to our neighbor. And I have ideas. If you're thinking, I've got ideas about how we could do that. I've got some strategies that I think make a lot of sense. And I know that there are some gifted brothers and sisters in this church that would gladly participate in things like this. If that's you this morning, come have a conversation with the pastors. We would love to talk with you about ways that we can be more strategic and ways that we can do better. I'm not afraid to use that word in engaging our neighbor and sharing Christ with people in this city. Let's talk about that. But then continuing on and thinking about our lives and what's most plain. Every one of us is called to uniquely love and do good to other members of this church. So we give ourselves to that. For all of us who are married, we're called to love and serve our spouse. For all of us who are raising children, we're called to love and teach and train them in the love and discipline of the Lord. We do these things. We are called to a vocation as well. Some of us have a vocation that's primarily in the home. Others of us have a vocation that's primarily outside the home. Some of us still have been stirred and called to vocational ministry where our livelihood is found in doing ministry work. And some of us will yet be called to it. And some of us still will be stirred and called to go and serve and take the gospel to other peoples. This is how this goes. And the Lord will do it. He'll make it plain through the means that I have already described. Just a a brief word of wisdom. Not all of us will be called to missions in a full-time vocational capacity. Just like not all of us are called even to full-time vocational ministry locally. That's obvious to you. It's obvious to me as well. We should prayerfully consider how to serve the Lord with our lives. We should lean into our brothers and sisters and their assessment of our gifts and our talents and our abilities. We should consider the things that we desire to do in service to Christ? That's an okay question to ask. You know that. What do you want to do? And it's also good to consider our lives. You remember how Paul writes of singleness, for example, in his letter to the Corinthians? He writes about the fact that he is single, and he's very clear that his singleness is for the purpose of ministry. Now, that doesn't mean that if you're going to give your life to missions, you must be single, but it does mean that we should consider our life and our station and our family and other people that depend upon us as we make decisions about what we're going to do in life. This is good and honoring to the Lord that we would talk this way. So kind of concluding my comments on missions, I just want to reiterate and emphasize a few things. First, God will accomplish all of his purposes. He will fulfill all of his promises and he will stir his people up and give his people a burden to be a part of the means of accomplishing all of that. He will do it. And the needle that we want to thread is that whatever God means to do, he will do. And whoever he needs in order to do it, he'll make it happen. 
And at the same time, this is never an excuse for indifference. We're good? We're tracking. Excellent. We should pray for the Lord to raise up workers for the harvest, and we should seek to be wise. Just as many men have ended up occupying pulpits to the confusion of their own souls and to the detriment of their people, so too many people have headed to the mission field, riding waves of passion or even guilt, and the fallout isn't good. May the Lord raise up his workers here and in other gospel preaching churches, and may he give us appropriate wisdom in all of these things. Last comment here to conclude point two is that you realize that Paul's work of sharing the gospel where it had never been shared and his work as an apostle was not just to preach the gospel into a vacuum and just dip out of town. It was to preach the gospel and see churches established. That does matter. We've talked we've talk so much from Romans and other places about how the apostles could not be more plain that God's plan for the Christian is to live a life in the local church. And so Paul would have been going about doing that kind of work. The planting and establishment of churches is how God saves and keeps his people. We'll just say that and leave that for now. There are other things that I could draw your attention to, but for now, I'll just remind you of what Paul had even said to the Romans in chapter one and verse 15 about how he had desired to come to be with them to do what? To preach the gospel to them. So plainly, the preaching of the same doctrine that Paul had preached for the first time in a new locale would then be preached week over week over week in a church established in that place. John Calvin wrote these words that I think are helpful, and I'll conclude the point with this. For we know that in churches rightly formed, where the truth of the gospel has been already received, Christ's name must be constantly preached. Paul then was a preacher of Christ, yet unknown to foreign nations for this end, that after his departure, the same doctrine should be daily proclaimed in every place by the mouth of the pastors, close quote. Amen. Point three, continuing on. These will be briefer, so get prepared for things. I don't want you to hurt your neck because we're looking quickly one way and another. Point three is Paul's hopes. Paul's hopes. We're going to look at verses 22 to 24. I'm not going to read them again. You can put your eyes on them as I talk if you would like. Again, remember, Paul's a human being. Yes, he's an apostle, but he's a man. He's living, breathing, flesh and blood like you and me. He wants to go to Rome. He's very clear. This is what I want to do. I've wanted to come for a long time. I want to be with you guys. And the reason that I haven't is not for lack of desire or affection. It is my calling as an apostle that's kept me from coming. I've had work I've had to do. We understand that. Very clear. He reiterates his hope to come. He also expresses his intention to go to Spain. This is what I'm hoping to do. Just like we would talk. He trusts that the saints in Rome will help him get there. And he's excited at the prospect of being with them, of enjoying their company. Yes, apostles were concerned for things like that. Enjoying the company of believers. There's much that's instructive for us in these verses, but just briefly, notice how Paul talks about his plans and his hopes and what he wants to do, and at the same time, clearly acknowledges the Lord's providence in it all. We should take a cue from him. We often can overcomplicate and frankly, over-spiritualize pretty much everything, right? We don't, we agonize over wisdom decisions. We search for like, Beams of light from heaven are things just like written across the sky so that we'll know what to do. We want to know God's will. 
not really how we need to operate. We pray. We ask the Lord for wisdom and guidance. We live life in the church. We use our gifts. We talk to our brothers and sisters. We ask simple questions like this. What opportunities are presented to me? What other opportunities, what other doors, so to speak, have been closed to me? And then we ask, like, what, what do I want to do? What do I hope to do? I love the Lord, and there are ways I want to serve him, and this, this seems really good to me. I want to talk about that with some of my brothers and sisters I trust. It's a good way to live. Alistair Begg is a pastor that some of you are familiar with. He, he pastors in Cleveland, Ohio, but he's from Scotland. Okay. He was once asked, how is it that you, a Scotsman, ended up pastoring in Cleveland, Ohio? Right? Not exactly a destination place, no slight to anybody from Cleveland, right? How did you end up a Scotsman pastoring in Cleveland, Ohio? And he said, they asked me to come. And that was it. He was just kind of like, the world is our parish, right? They asked me to come. It seemed good that I would go, so I went. And he's been there for decades. It can be that simple, right? Don't overcomplicate it. The Lord will make it plain. Point four, Paul's current mission, Paul's current Mission And that current mission I'm talking about is taking financial aid to Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, verses 25 to 29. So his current mission is to take financial aid that's been compiled to poor saints in Jerusalem, Jews who had become Christians in Jerusalem. Now, question, why would Paul be the one to deliver this money? I ask this because we generally do not think well about how to use time and what really matters when it comes to ministry. We just, we just don't. I could give various examples about how we often don't know what's best to give our attention to or how best to use our time. We fall off the horse one side or the other. You know, we will encourage people on the one hand, like, hey, you're going to go to your nine to five job. And while you're on the clock getting paid to whatever, you know, build tables you're going to not do that job and share the gospel because you're a Christian. We think that's good. But then somebody's employed in vocational ministry to preach sermons primarily, and we think it's bad that they would study rather than being doing other kinds of service, right? Like we just struggle about what matters most, right? And how do we use our time? How do we serve the Lord well in our jobs? We just don't think well about it. So I ask, why would Paul stop preaching the gospel all over the place to go take this money to Jerusalem? Clearly, there had to be a reason. All right, well, let me ask. Who was the aid for? Jewish Christians, right? Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. Who had provided the aid? Gentile Christians, right? What has Paul written a lot about in Romans? Unity. Jew and Gentile. What did he write in Ephesians? Right, that Jesus has torn down the dividing wall of hostility and he's made us all one in his body, the church. It seems that Paul was giving himself to take this money to Jerusalem in an effort to continue to unite Jews and Gentiles in the church. I, the apostle of the Gentiles, on behalf of Gentile Christians, I'm going to take financial aid to poor Jewish saints in Jerusalem. That's what I'm going to do. Because this is a demonstration of brotherly love and this is a demonstration of the kind of unity that should exist in the body of Christ. In all of this, Paul commends the Gentile believers for their generosity. And he commends the appropriateness of Gentile believers coming to the aid of their Jewish brothers and sisters. This sounds like Romans 11, 
right? The Gentile saints were debtors to the Jews for the gospel. The Christ came from them, and the Gentiles received the gospel through the Jews. And at the same time, these Gentile believers, two different times, Paul says, they were pleased to do this. So it wasn't just duty. It wasn't just obligation. They wanted to help. Both are true. In Christ, the love for their fellow saints was the motivator. Just something for our observation. Point five, Paul's request for prayer. Point five, Paul's request for prayer. We're going to look at verses 30 to 32. So Paul, in these verses, earnestly appeals to the saints in Rome to pray for him. He asks that they pray for three things. First, that he would be delivered from unbelievers in Judea. That's where Jerusalem is. Now, why would he ask for that prayer? Well, because the Jews hated him. You realize this. Because he was viewed as being against Moses. He was viewed as a blasphemer. Right? Just brief observation here. He prays that he would be delivered from people that might seek his harm. Now, Paul was certainly willing to suffer for Christ's sake, was he not? Yes. He was willing to suffer clearly even to the point of dying for Christ. And at the same time, he asked for prayer for his safety and well-being. Let that be instructive to us. Right? He clearly was never prepared to reject his duty or not fulfill his calling because he might suffer. And at the same time, he says, Pray for me that I might be safe in doing this, right? It's good that we think in these ways. He also asks that the saints pray that his ministry in Jerusalem would be acceptable to the saints there and that he would finally be able to come to Rome in joy and be refreshed by them. Very simple things. I could comment for a while on prayer, but suffice it to say that Paul clearly understood that he needed the prayers of the saints and he's an apostle. So what does that mean for you? or me. We need the prayers of the saints, right? We, we often kind of downplay our need of prayer, and we even say things in certain situations like, hey, I don't need your prayers. I need you to do something for me. And I understand what we mean. Sometimes that's entirely legitimate. But may we never downplay the significance of the saints praying for us. And may we be a people where we pray for each other on a regular basis, where we pray for the ministry here at the church, for our love and our unity and our growth and all those things, our sanctification. But we pray also for individuals in the church who we know are going through it. It's a good way to live. Now, realize this too, as you're thinking about how all of these things work together in the Lord's providence. Did Paul ever get to Rome? Did he? Yeah, he did. He got to Rome eventually. Now, how did he arrive there? In chains. My brother right here, a second row Baptist up here in the front, just said it. In chains, right? He got there in chains. Maybe that's what happens when you sit at the front, dog. I don't know. We'll see. But you know how this happens, right? He was arrested. He goes to Jerusalem like he's telling him he is. He's arrested in the temple. He reveals that he's a Roman citizen. He's then brought before a governor named Felix. He's kept in custody. He appeals to Caesar. He's then brought before a man named Agrippa. And then he has a long voyage at sea. Right? There's shipwreck. There's this island called Malta, where a number of them spend some time. Finally arrives in Rome. Paul does. And there he was, we read in Acts, that he was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. So he's kind of under house arrest, right? But they still made him pay for his place because he rented a house there for two years. 
That's a tough way to, to go, ain't it? You gotta pay for your place, but you're under house arrest. There it is. And then we read the final two verses of Acts. Paul there for two years under house arrest. He welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. That's good. Paul got to Rome, but it didn't exactly go how he thought it would go. Yet there was much good in the way that things went down and the Lord worked in and through it. And he was not hindered in his ability to do ministry. Now, think about that and ask yourself this question. Is this not how it often goes in our own life? Is it not? Why would we expect anything different? This has often happened to God's people. Right? We have hopes, we have aspirations, we have plans, we pray, we plan, we do all the things we can. And maybe it even turns out happening, kind of, but just not the way we thought. But the Lord's good and he's faithful and the Lord accomplishes his purposes through us and through it. May that comfort us and give us hope and encouragement. Even if you're in a season right now where just, man, things ain't going the way I want them to go. Lastly, just in the interest of time, I'll try to be brief before we conclude. You see in these final verses of the chapter, at least 30 to 32, that Paul is unashamed to write of the refreshment and the encouragement that he expected to receive from being with the saints in Rome. Don't miss that. And he expects that they will be refreshed and encouraged by being with him too. Robert Haldane, I've referred to him at a number of points through this sermon series, writes these words, to reflect on the word of God gives great refreshment. But to reflect on this in company with other Christians is the most heavenly exercise. Amen. We talk often when we welcome people to church. We're here because we need Jesus and because we need each other. May that come home to rest in our hearts, that we do need one another, and that we find much strength and much encouragement by being together. That the Lord didn't intend for us to live this Christian life alone, but that he means for us to live it with each other as we encourage one another and strengthen one another in the Lord by his spirit. There's a lot of joy and encouragement of being together anytime, and there's a lot of joy and encouragement being together on the Lord's day. I trust you experience that. I certainly do by being with you. And so if there's any word of encouragement to you and me, come here on Sundays intentionally thinking about the joy and the privilege that it is to engage other believers and come prepared to do it. Come excited to do it. I'm not saying that that means you're just feeling it and geeked up every Sunday. That's not what I'm asking of any of us. But think about, man, I get to go and be with my people today. And I get to go and hear of Christ with my brothers and sisters today. I get to encourage somebody who's struggling today. I get to listen. Somebody may help me today to think through something that I am dealing with and enjoy participating in corporate worship because it is an experience that we share together week over week. Have that thought in your mind as you read things from the bulletin that we do. As we sing, be mindful of the fact that we are singing to each other and to the Lord, but you encourage me by the ways that you sing, right? I might not be feeling it today, but man, my brother is singing. Maybe I can't even sing this morning, but man, my sister is belting Christ in my ear. That's helpful. It's encouraging. Just be mindful of those things and the privilege and the joy that it is to be together. All right, so we're going to conclude now. Put your eyes on verse 33. This is Paul's benediction, and it is effectively mine to us. 
May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. May it be. God of peace is an expression that Paul uses frequently in his letters to describe the Lord. We're on the right track when we take peace to mean the love of God, which has reconciled his people to himself through Jesus Christ. So when you hear God of peace, think that. The love of God, which has reconciled his people to himself through Jesus Christ. The prophets foretold this. You know this verse. We say it often at Christmas. We should say it more often than that, though. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah 42, the servant of the Lord. He's going to execute justice and establish justice in all the earth. And he, in doing that, won't break bruised reeds and won't put out wicks that are smoldering. He will bring judgment to victory, says the prophet. The prophet Ezekiel speaks of an everlasting covenant of peace that the Lord will make with his people. And when he does that, he says, I'm going to set David up as the one shepherd and prince of my people. And I will dwell with my people in peace forever. That David that he sets up, we know who he is. David's dead when Ezekiel wrote that. He's talking about someone greater. But the angels, not just the prophets wrote of this, the angels announced it. Again, think of Christmas time. The you know, Christian version of Twas the Night Before Christmas that you read around the fireplace this December 24th. Luke chapter 2. What did the angels say to the shepherds? Fear not, that's a word of peace, right? Don't be afraid. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And then what did the heavenly host say? This is like the hosts of heaven, right? What did they say in response to this? And what did they say in their praises to God? You know this as well. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. The apostles unpacked this peace. We could talk about it for a long time, but think Colossians 1. The one who would come and establish this peace is the image of the invisible God. By him and through him and for him, all things were created. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And for in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. To what purpose? So that through him, God might reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Do you ever feel afraid? When you think about God, do you ever feel afraid? When you think about him, do you ever feel guilt? Shame. In a time when you're at your lowest, do you ever hesitate to go to him? Right? Like deep down, I, kind of, I know that he's all I got. I know that he's what I need, but 
I don't, I don't know. You ever been there? This is why the message of Jesus is such wonderful, sweet news for us. Because he took all the guilt, all the judgment, all the curse, all the wrath, all the things that would stand between us and the Lord. He took it on himself. He took our sin. All the real sin and all the corruption of our nature that would alienate us from God and should make us afraid to approach him. He took it all. And it's been dealt with. There is no longer guilt, shame, fear, dread. All of the righteousness, all of the goodness in us that God would ever require for us to boldly approach him, Jesus did that. He lived that. He fulfilled it. And by faith in him, what's his is ours. So not only do we not have the guilt and the shame and all that stuff, all the curse and the judgments handled, we can boldly approach the throne of grace because in Christ we have been declared just as he is just. May that encourage your soul that not on the basis of your feelings, not on the basis of your works, not on the basis of your hopes or desires, not on the basis of what you think you should be, do we go to the Lord. But on account of Christ, we have been reconciled to God. And now all that we know from the Lord is his loving, benevolent presence with us. And we know that as the ironic benediction would say, may the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. He has. That's how the Lord deals with us now. May that warm your heart. And if you're sitting here this morning and you have never thought about these things, but you carry guilt and shame around, because I know you do, every human does, there's nothing we'd rather talk with you about this morning than how those burdens and those things can be removed from you only by a person named Jesus Christ. Jesus himself, beloved, is our peace. Paul writes this in Ephesians 2. He is the one, you remember, who said of himself, I came to seek and save the lost. I didn't come to seek and save those who are well. I didn't come to seek and save those who know what they're doing. I came to seek and save those who are lost. Like a man named Zacchaeus, who was a tax collector and a really bad sinner, right? Just like you and me. And Jesus is walking along the road and goes to the tree where the man is perched up there so that he can see Jesus, calls to him and says, hurry and come down. I mean, again, just put yourself there. Hurry and come down, Zacchaeus, for I must stay with you today. And he later pronounces, salvation has come to this house today. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Have you ever thought about the fact that Jesus, in coming to save you, to die for you and be your righteousness, speaks these words to you? Hurry and come down. I want to stay with you today. That he wants to do that. You ever thought about that? He speaks, Jesus does, words of peace throughout his earthly ministry. Think, put yourself here. Think about being a paralyzed man, incapable of doing anything for yourself. And you've got friends that care for you. They want to help you. You all have heard of Jesus in his ministry. It's thick, though, in the house where he's speaking. Can't get in the door. And you're lowered down through a roof into the midst of all of this. You wonder what he's going to say to you. Helpless, vile, weak, need others to usher you into his presence. What's he going to say? Son, dear one, your sins are forgiven. 
That's what he says. He speaks words of peace. He did to a criminal on the cross next to him. This man who may have had some categories of what's supposed to go on in the synagogue, but he sure hadn't lived the life. He had broken God's law six ways from Sunday, is convicted in his dying moment, looks at Jesus and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. How did Jesus respond? Maybe you feel that way. I have absolutely blown it in every conceivable way. And I, today, maybe for the first time, I see that I need mercy. But what would he say to me? Surely he won't receive me. Oh, but he will. Truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. That was his word. To his disciples, he said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in me. Because I live, you also will live. Peace I leave with you. Not as the world gives do I give peace to you. Let not your hearts be troubled and neither let them be afraid. The Father himself loves you. I've said these things to you that you may have peace. Beloved, God has set aside his wrath because Jesus has taken it. And we now have free access to God. And hear this, we have full assurance of his love. And he's so delighted about this that there's rejoicing in heaven every time a sinner repents. So then, what would we expect? What would we expect to receive from him when we go? Think on that. Think on that this afternoon. How would you answer that? When I go to the Lord, what would I expect to receive from him? Is it not love and grace and joy and peace? Let these thoughts of God console you and comfort your heart. He is the God of peace, and he is with you. Let's pray.